Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of It's Crime Time. On today's episode, I want to talk about a case that I feel like a lot of people haven't heard of, or at least I hadn't heard of it until I recently watched someone's documentary about it on YouTube. Actually, two documentaries. I found one, and then I went and looked at the other one because the first one I watched had reference to the other one. But anyway, those two documentaries, one is made by Sherilyn Dale on YouTube. Check her out. She's amazing. Her... I guess you could call it a video podcast. She tells stories of crimes um, and she does a lot for the family. She does a lot of research. She helps victims' families. Um, She even actually went to the rally that David's father in this case held for his son. And then the second one was Gavin Fish. Gavin Fish has a website. It has all of the crime scene photos of this case. It has all of the recordings, like interrogations and everything for this case. And he also has, I believe, three videos out about this case on YouTube. He also went to the rally that David's father held. So those two are just amazing at helping victims' families and doing the research. So I highly recommend looking into their, I guess you could call them documentaries, podcasts about this case. But anyway, so when I watched those, they bothered me so bad. I wanted to research into it. I've spent the past couple of months researching into this because I just feel like I cannot tell the story as good as those two have and as good as obviously the family has. But I have to talk about this and encourage others to do something about it if they can because it just, there's something not right about this case. And you will find that out when you hear this. And if you watch the other documentaries, it just doesn't sit well. And obviously it didn't sit well with his family either. So. And I'm talking about the case of David Scott Elmquist. All right, everyone, it's crime time. David Scott Elmquist was born on February 24th, 1993, so he was born at the same year as me. Two parents, Nancy and Scott Elmquist, and he grew up in rural Cocado, Minnesota with his brothers Eric and Seth and his sister Amy. He was the youngest of the Elmquist children. It was said that he had a very good childhood and a home life. His family was just very tight-knit, they were very loving, and nothing, you know, um, traumatic or remarkable to mention happened that I'm aware of, so he was just very close with his family. He graduated from Dasso Kokato High School in 2011. He then chose to attend the Free Lutheran Bible College and Seminary in Plymouth. He also worked at Ron's service station in Dasso. David traveled to North Dakota eventually to work in the oil fields with his brother Eric. This is a job that he was said to have absolutely loved. He was so proud of learning the ways of the oil field and just getting better at his at his job. He posted um, on social media some pictures and videos of him working on the oil field and he just looks so ecstatic, so happy to be learning this this trade. And um, so I'm not exactly sure what made him leave the oil fields, but he left the oil fields and then he came back home to Minnesota where he met and married his wife, Emily Maninen, or Maninen, um, I've heard it pronounced both ways, in 2017. Now, a lot of people uh, recognize her as Miss X. Um, 
including David's family. It, his Her name is mentioned on Gavin Fish's videos and everything, but for most of this, I'm probably just going to refer to her as his wife. The couple moved into an apartment at 3301 Highway 69. It was apartment 352 in Plymouth, Minnesota. According to David's sister, Amy, David's wife worked for a family in North Dakota at one time who had a child that was autistic. She also worked at summer camps for people with disabilities, and she was essentially trained to de-escalate situations with mentally ill people. Now we're gonna get to more on this later and why I mentioned this, but apparently Emily was trained in um, mental health. She was trained, and I'm not sure if she had a, um, a, a degree in psychology or something of that sort, but either way, she had experience with um, people with disabilities and mentally ill people. So, also David's sister Amy had been very close friends with David's wife. David had been just a normal guy at this point. He was married and he was just working to provide for he and his wife and their dog. The only major lapse they say he had in his mental health happened a few weeks prior to the incident that caused his death. Apparently, the only substances that he used was cannabis and alcohol. So cannabis and alcohol, um, which his wife thinks may have had something to do with his mental health lapse. And I have my thoughts on that. But, you know, anyway, that's that's what he has said to only have, have done. So he wasn't on some wild, crazy drugs or anything of that sort. But he had an episode of psychosis and he was taken to the hospital. After this, on January 29th, 2018, he and his wife had a civil court hearing pertaining to the incident with his mental health. I believe this hearing was to um, see if he could be released from the hospital. David's attorney, Daniel Rowanors, cross-examined him on the stand that day, asking him what he planned to do after being released. He stated he would plan to just go home, back to his wife, contact his job because they were interested in having him back and just go back to work and continue doing, you know, what he had been doing. David was also asked how his mental health status was at the time, to which he replied that it was good. It was better than before he went into the hospital. He planned to take his medications that the doctors prescribed him. But then David was questioned by the lawyer for the medical center where he was staying. He was asked about his medications, which ones he was on, the plan for him, and he was told that the hospital actually wanted to keep him for further treatment. His wife was then questioned about what led up to him being hospitalized and why she thought he needed to be hospitalized. She said she had found him at his parents in his underwear, reading the Bible to them, just kind of ranting about these, you know, religious statements. And, and he wouldn't respond to her. He wouldn't respond to anyone. He was just so occupied with this religious, you know, the Bible and these religious statements that he was, that, that's just what he kept ranting about. He wouldn't react to anyone. And I guess, I believe this is obviously the incident, um, but... He was crawling on the floor and she kind of was smacking him in the face to, she said, snap him out of it. I have my theories on this too and my thoughts. I don't agree. I don't think that you should be slapping or hitting anyone that is going through um, a lapse of, you know, their judge, their mental judgment if they're going through psychosis. Now, she did say it wasn't dangerous to himself or her, but not even that, but slapping somebody who doesn't know, you know, isn't in reality at the moment. I mean, that can make them 20 times worse, you know. They could freak out even worse. Um, they could hurt you. He wasn't apparently dangerous, but yeah, just don't. <laughs> just don't slap anyone who's going through, you know, something like this. It's just not, it's not good for them. It's not good for you. 
So there's plenty of better ways she could have won it. You can't snap someone out of a, a psychosis episode by smacking them. It is a very powerful um, mental situation, you know, that your mind goes through. And slapping somebody will not wake them up or snap them out of it. So that was, I'll just say it, I, I believe that was dumb on her part. So eventually his family had made a group decision to take him to the hospital because there, there was just nothing they thought they could do for him. His wife stated she did not think he was a danger to himself or her and that she would definitely welcome him back home at this time. Due to him being back in his normal state, he seemed fine. The doctor that was present as well as the judge concluded it would not be healthy for David to return to work just yet. He needed to take his medication, he needed to get his mental health on track, and the judge was to make a ruling on this hearing that afternoon. I hadn't found information on this ruling on whether David was to stay in the hospital until his Thursday hearing or not. Now, obviously, he was going to get out of the hospital, and he did eventually. I'm just not exactly sure um, what, what that type of ruling was or anything like that. So David fell back into his old routine eventually of going to work. He had some residual issues determining maybe what certain things, like if certain things were real or not. But overall, he was stable enough to return to work. He wasn't having like full on mental breaks or psychotic, you know, episodes anymore where he just didn't know, you know, anything that was going on. He wasn't in his right mind. That, that didn't happen again, apparently. His wife had stated in an interview with Sergeant Heath Bird on March 1st, after this incident that caused his death happened, that things were fine on Wednesday before his death. They had to meet David's parents to borrow a vehicle because his truck was being fixed. They drove to Delano to get this vehicle from David's parents and they got home and things were totally fine. He took his parents' car to work on Thursday, February 8th, 2018. Then David stated he was going to drive his parents' car back to their house and his dad was going to bring him home. His wife had stated that this was very ridiculous, which I don't see how, but okay. I think she was probably upset that he was spending time with his parents. He wanted to go to his parents' house. She also claims that David's father had been very rude to her at the time that David was in the hospital. Supposedly he yelled in her face. So the night he drove David back to the house after he brought their car back to him, David's dad supposedly wanted to apologize for the yelling incident, apparently. And then, I mean, I guess David's dad got sick after this at some point. I don't know. I'm not sure about that um, situation. The day before his death, like I'd mentioned, he went to visit his parents to take the vehicle back while he and his dad were waiting on his mom to get back from work. Oh, and it's kind of the day before his death, but not really just based on the time of his death, of course, but it's that day. So he went to take the vehicle back and while he and his dad were waiting on his mom to get back from work, he brought up his marriage to his dad. He wanted to know from his dad how divorce would affect him at his church if he had a son that had gotten divorced because obviously divorce is frowned upon, severely frowned upon in a lot of churches in, um, and in the Christian religion. A lot of churches are okay, you know, they're they're whatever about it, they're more lenient, but some churches are just, no, you definitely don't get a divorce. Of course, they frown um, upon it and they just look down on people for it. So his dad informed him that, you know, things would be fine and that David could come live with them for a few months to get his mental health in check and they would be able to help him and observe him better. Scott says his son said he didn't even know if this, this conversation here was real. His dad told him, you know, well, come on, like, let's go to the store. Um, David wanted to get some nicotine gum to quit chewing. And David said he didn't want to go back to the hospital on his way home, which is not where they were heading. So at this point, he, he did seem a bit confused and tired, his dad said, but 
nothing extreme. Before they left the house, David's mom did come home from work and David finally informed them both that he wanted to file for divorce from his wife due to her manipulating everything and the marriage being toxic. Apparently his wife kept him from spending adequate time with his parents. When David's mother, Nancy, asked what would happen when he told his wife he wanted a divorce, David replied that she would go ballistic. I mean, she, so she would just go crazy um, when he told her. And David had, you know, been making plans to move into his parents' home the next day. So the day of February 9th, 2018. On the night of February 8th, David had been texting his father after he had got home, talking about their plans for the next day and about him moving in. And then eight hours later, the incident that resulted in David's death occurred, which is very odd to say the least, because he was, he had all these plans, you know, he had, he had these plans to, well, move on with life and continue his life. He never mentioned anything about feeling down or suicidal or anything of that sort. So basically the story is that David woke up his wife before 11 PM. She was apparently laying in the bed. Um, and he was, I guess, laying beside her at one point from some of the stories that have been given and he had got up she had fallen asleep he got up he woke her up and he said that it was time for her to go um to leave the house and he just kept saying it was time she says he was probably out in the kitchen and he came into the bedroom naked and he grabbed both of their cell phones she claimed that he said he would give her cell phone back when she left so if she agreed to leave and on her way out i guess he would give her his um give her her phone back is what she was saying she says she went into the bedroom and i think it was to grab some of her clothing and david was outside in the kitchen dumping a uh, liquid onto his head and the rest of his body so she heard this splashing noise and he also had a lighter with him and uh, i guess she ran back in to get more clothes and came out to tell him that he doesn't need to do this and he could talk to her and everything would be okay the other story um is apparently that she got woke up by him he was standing above her naked and already had the liquid on himself which the liquid was Bakken crude oil which is um some oil that he collected from the oil fields where he worked in a container um I guess whenever she said that they could um, just talk and, and things would be okay he kept telling her no and when he raised his arms some of the oil got onto her hair and her clothes apparently She says she went into the bathroom to wash the oil off, which would have been very difficult and taken more time, I think, than what she had stated because Falcon crude oil is very sticky. It's thick. It's just really hard to get off of your skin as adequately as she had gotten it off, apparently. So that's one of the things that's a little odd about this. She then, I guess, got her phone back and was yelling help, supposedly, but he put his hand over her mouth and told her no. He kept telling her no. She exited the apartment after grabbing uh, his truck keys, I believe, and their dog. A man met her in the hallway of the apartment to ask her what was going on. She told the man that David had oil and he was trying to start a fire with it. And you'll notice in this, she doesn't say that she told the man he had oil on himself and that he was planning to light himself. He asked her if she'd called 911 or why hadn't she or whatever. And um, he, I guess, dialed 911. And she says that when she was running down the apartment hallway, she dialed 911, she went out the side door and went outside. Um, on her way down the hallway, she said she saw smoke coming out of the door. 
Gavin Fish made some very good points here in his video when he notes that David's wife just kind of left him in this state, even though he was clearly having a mental breakdown. And I'm sorry, um, I'm trying not to judge, but it's hard not to because if this was my husband doing this, there's just no way in hell I would just let him do this. Like, there's no way I would let him, you know, I, I don't even care. I would take the lighter from, I would do whatever I could to try to get him not to do this because that's my husband and I obviously really super love my husband and I'm not gonna let someone I love just, oh, you know, I guess, you know, he's gonna kill himself so I better just leave. I don't care if he tells me to leave or not. I'm going to fight, you know, and, and just try my hardest to stay in that place because I just can't let him do that to himself. So that's another thing that was um, noted as being very strange and how she describes just, you know, yeah, she fought him, she says, but it wasn't, I don't know, it wasn't very like, it wasn't a, it wasn't an adequate, adequate enough way or t adequate enough time spent trying to get the um, lighter or the oil whatever i can't really word it that well but but whatever point is you know she didn't try hard enough is 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 what it seems like police told the firefighters at the scene to stand down and to not rescue david because they had been told that he had knives and he was dangerous so instead of being rescued by police or firefighters a maintenance worker of the building actually extinguished david as he was burning and I, I fault the police slightly for this, but I also don't because they were going off the information that David's wife had given them, that he was in there with knives and was dangerous, but that's not true. But also the point is that they're police officers, they have guns, you know, one man that's in there on fire probably can't do much damage. So, I mean, especially with just a knife, so, you know, that's kind of bullshit there too, in terms of why he wasn't, you know, checked on or rescued sooner. So for 39 minutes, he was inside the apartment after the 911 call went out. Um, someone could have helped him, but they did not. Police then shot out the apartment window so they could clear out some of the smoke and David eventually walked out of the apartment alone, collapsing to the ground. Apparently um, they checked him for weapons and everything before they put him in the ambulance. And uh, one report, I believe, states that he asked for some water, which is, I don't know, a little strange because they said that his airways and everything were just so burnt, I don't know that he would have been able to speak. He was also blind, so. He was then rushed to the hospital and around 1 a.m. his wife called David's father to tell him what had happened. But David's dad was just not in the mood to talk at that moment. He was trying to sleep and he thought maybe she was just upset, needed to talk, or maybe David had brought up the divorce and she was just, you know, hysterical about it and needed to talk to his parents. So the phone then went to voicemail, but she called again right after. And this time Scott decided, well, I better answer it. You know, she's calling again. So he kind of got worried. She informed him that David was now in the hospital after setting himself on fire and he had a 1% chance of survival, according to the doctor. He was blind, he had soot in his lungs from smoke inhalation, and he was burned on over 90% of his body. David's mom, Nancy, had to drive the family to see him because Scott was just too overcome with emotion to drive. So once getting there, they entered David's room where they saw his condition and began to just sob and break down. I mean, this is, I can't imagine, I cannot imagine like the heartbreak involved in the situation. You know, they didn't even know this was occurring. They knew nothing. They get a phone call in the middle of the night and then they walk into their son's room and they see that he's essentially charred. I mean, he's, he's you know, like 
just mummified, like he's burnt so badly that they have, um, I've heard a description of him. They're kind of saying he was essentially mummified, like he was just charred so badly. So they, um, you know, it's hard to deal with. I mean, that's their son, you know, and he had plans to move in the next day and everything was supposed to be fine. So the doctors then spoke to um, the family when they were all together because David's wife was sitting in the hallway with her mom and she refused to go in and see David alone. So she waited until David's family got there and then they all went in and the doctor spoke to them and explained that the best thing to do would be to take the ventilator off David and let him pass. This would take several hours. His parents thought it would be best to just say goodbye to him before he passed and leave because they believed that their crying and you know their grieving was just disrupting the hospital. And that is also another heartbreaking thing is because hospitals are a place where obviously hundreds and hundreds of people die. And it's, I mean, it's sad, it's very sad. Like, so, I mean, they're used to that. You know, there, there's people that, that cry all the time in the hospital, um, but they thought that, you know, they're sobbing that was loud and it must have been disrupting people. So they said, okay, you know, we need to just say our goodbyes and let him pass in peace. Um, he went, so Scott went to say goodbye to David's wife and give her a hug, but she kind of awkwardly stood with her arms to the side as if she didn't want to hug him. And I guess she was back in the hallway at this point. So rather than judging her, they just assumed that that was how she was dealing with the situation and how she was dealing with everything. But the weird thing is to me, I have also read that David passed away alone. His parents had left, obviously. And then his wife was to go in, you know, I guess, and, and she should have sat with him. But I think he passed away uh, with a nurse around or something of that sort. So she, I'm guessing, just stayed in the hallway. At this time, his parents had not fully known the story and they wanted to know what happened with him. Scott had this feeling that things were not as they seemed with this incident, just due to the way that David was acting so normally when they had discussed that he was going back home the next day, other than that little incident there where he, you know, was afraid that he was getting taken back to the hospital while he was being taken home. But he didn't seem to be totally out of it, you know, having this psychotic break um, or the psychosis episode that he had had before. So they just didn't understand, you know, they had all these plans with him and then all of a sudden this happened. So not long after David's death, his wife, posted on social media that life without David was just different. One of her family members commented saying, sometimes different doesn't mean bad. Sometimes different is just different, which that's kind of fucked up. I mean, I'm sorry, the language, but but it's, it's pretty fucked up. Like, I mean, I'm not sure if this family member knew David and was claiming that her life wasn't, you know, wasn't bad without him. I mean, either way, that was pretty disgusting to say. Um, and like I said, I'm not like, you know, the most amazing person on the planet or the best wife on the planet, but I, I would be freaking devastated. Like, I wouldn't just put that life was just different. I mean, I would be freaking lost. I don't know that I would even be, you know, making these weird posts on Facebook or anything like that. But anyway, so that's kind of strange. David's mom, Nancy, commented and said, different for us is heartbreaking. That's their different. That's the different they have to deal with every day. Life is different um, without their son and it's it's heartbreaking and that's, you know. So after this comment, um, David's wife then deleted and blocked all of David's family members on social media and um, on their phones or on her phones or whatever. 
I'm not sure at this point, but I believe that this might have occurred after her and David's sister Amy had kind of a falling out or Amy was still talking to her at the time. But either way, she just kind of cut all contact with him for Lord knows what reason, because it wasn't, you know, I mean, it wasn't that big of a deal. Like they, Nancy didn't go, you know, totally crazy on her post and, and flip out or anything. She just made this simple comment. So I don't get all that. So David's family goes to investigators and they were not treated well at all. They still aren't being treated well to this day. The investigators claim that there is absolutely no question that David committed suicide. They were not concerned. The authorities were not interested in allowing David's family to view the records to see if maybe the case wasn't as cut and dry as it seemed to be. And eventually they were given access to the records and Scott has been advocating for this case to be reinvestigated since that day, ever since that day. So now I'm gonna talk about a few things that they think are suspicious, but first I wanna play you this recording. You were sleeping? I was sleeping. Ah, uh, well, sort of sleeping. Just laying in bed. Uh, in your bedroom? Yes, in my bedroom. I was kind of dozing out for your bed. Where was he? Um, he, I thought, was in the bedroom too, watching news. Um, but I realized now that he was probably out in the kitchen. Um, he came in. He was naked. Um, saying these things. I got out of bed. I walked into the kitchen. He said, "What's going on?" He said, it's time for you, you need to go to your parents, you need to listen to me. I walked back into the bedroom to grab my cell phone. He came, he came into the bedroom, he grabbed his cell phone and mine and took, took mine from me. And I said, well, I need my phone. He told me that he, I, he would give it back to me when I left to go to my parents. I said, okay. I went back into the bedroom, he grabbed a shirt and I started to hear a splashing sound. Um, I walked up, took a step out of the bedroom and I could see that he was dumping brown liquid, which was oil, over the top of his head. Um, and it was at that point that I realized that the stove was on, uh, the burners on top of the stove mm -hmm. were, the, the light was lit up that they were on. Um, and then I noticed behind him he had a, like a thicker lighter. He would use to stir a, a grill or something like that. Um, I had, uh, I ran back into the bedroom, grabbed a sweatshirt, and uh, tried to grab the lighter from the counter. Um, and I said, you know, you don't need to do this. It's going to be okay. Just talk to me. Um, he said, no, it's time you need to leave. And he, he grabbed I grabbed and he had some of the oil up and some got over my arms and my clothes. Um, and I went into the bathroom quickly to rinse off the oil that was on my arms, ran back out into the hallway area and um, grabbed my phone, started to yell, scream, help. He put his hand over my mouth. Um, I said, no, no, no. I was able to grab a key off of a key uh, hanger that we have by the door, had my phone, my sweatshirt, and was able to get the, our dog to come out. I got into the hallway and shut the door and I started to scream help again. Um, 
there was a man that in that year in Halloween, they said, look drunk, what's going on? And I said, he has oil, he's trying to start a fire. Um, he opened his apartment door to get his uh, partner out. Uh, my dog started to run into their apartment. I got the dog's attention, ran down the hallway, and while I was running, I dialed 911. Um, got on the phone with the dispatcher, realized I didn't have the, my vehicle keys, so I couldn't get into my vehicle, but I had my husband's vehicle keys. Um, went out a side door, so I didn't have to go back into the building and the Ran out the side door, was talking with the dispatcher, dispatcher about what was going on, um, and then slowly made my way back around. Did you um, see or um, smell any smoke before you left? Um, as I was in the hallway, I did turn back and I did see some smoke start to come out from the bottom of the door. Not not a, not a lot, just a little bit. Okay. Um, and then. Um, just kind of going back again with the history mm -hmm. of David. Um, you were telling me earlier that he had um, a previous incident where he was hospitalized. Yeah. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. Um, he was brought to the emergency room on January 19th. Um, he was in uh, a state of psychosis, having delusions. Um, we weren't sure. Uh, we, meaning myself and his parents, weren't sure if. You know, there was something medical, like an infection or a brain tumor or something that was kind of causing these. He was making a lot of religious statements. Um, he was very pointed towards me, thinking that I was um, a sinner and out to get him and evil. Um, Rock's emergency room where they did lab work and they talked to David and um, determined that he needed to be placed under a 72-hour hold. Transferred from the Naval Grove Hospital to Fairview Riverside, um, where he he was at that hospital for nine days or ten days. Um, he was assessed, and he so the seventy-two hour hold would have been up that Wednesday morning. Um, prior to that, they didn't feel. The doctors didn't feel that he was safe to come home because he wasn't taking his medications. Um, well, he was at the hospital? Well, he was at the hospital. Um, and he had only taken, I, I can't, I don't know for sure because he had signed a release form for me, um, but I believe that he had only taken medications once uh, from Saturday to Tuesday night. Um, and so they went through with the process to commit David to the hospital. As this process started, we were able to, um, again, his parents and myself were able to sit with him and talk to him about medications and why they're important, and he seemed willing and wanting to take them. Um, so he began taking the medications. He, when he got home, this before he opened also, um, he began taking medications consistently. They seemed to be helping him. He was becoming more stable. Um, they had a court hearing, the whole commitment process, and then the doctors that evaluated him couldn't find any evidence to support that he would be a danger to himself or anyone else. Um, I supported that. He wasn't really dangerous to me within the first instant. He was just sort of, ang sort of angry with me about delusional things that weren't necessarily about me. Um, 
So I supported him coming home. Um, he came. He was discharged on Tuesday. Um, following Tuesday, um, he was given dose uh, one month of live medication. He had his first uh, appointment with a therapist Tuesday the seventh. Um, and he, he had told me that he had been taking the medications. I'm not 100% sure if he was just used. I, I saw him take a couple, but um, at the hospital, they did, or he did tell us that the first few days he would take them, but he would just be in his sheet and set them up later on. Um, and so, I don't know, I tried, I would count pills to make sure that, you know, he was taking one every day. I just tried to make myself a presence in the bathroom when he was and it's always been that same medication? Yep. Um, he's been, since he got to the hospital, they were giving him three milligrams of the Perspergone. Sergeant Heathbrook, Bash 161. Uh, case number 1800-5796. Uh, the date is March 1st, 2018. The time now is 16.58 hours. Uh, this will be a case statement with first name Emily. Last name is Elmquist. Date of birth is 5.30.94. Uh, reason taking place at the Plymouth Police Department. And Emily, just so you know, you don't have to talk to me if you don't want to. You're not under arrest for anything. You can feel free to leave at any point, okay? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, typically, when something like this happens, we tr our patrol officers trying to get a statement from any witnesses or involved parties the night that it happened. Mm -hmm. um, what happens, though, is we learn other information as things go along. And there's questions that need to be asked that they probably didn't think to ask you at that night. Sure. Um, and that's kind of why I wanted to stop talking to you. Okay. Just to answer some of those questions, maybe a little more of the backstory about kind of what led up to this. Mm -hmm. um, David's family obviously has a lot of questions about the events that led up to this and you know hopefully we can answer some of those questions for them. Have they contacted you? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And, and that's understandable. Mm -hmm. It's their son. Yep. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I don't know what your relationship is with them but they're struggling mm -hmm. and I understand that. Mm -hmm. So can I can I ask when they when they contacted me? Um, David's dad reached out to me fairly soon after this happened. Sure. Like within the first couple of days, okay. just wanting to talk to me and wanting to know what I knew and mm -hmm. stuff. Like, I mean, just questions that I would have as a parent. Yeah. 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 So. Mm -hmm. So, how long were you and David married? Um, almost eleven months to the day. Okay. Our anniversary is March eleventh. Okay. And then, how long had you been together before that? Um, we started dating 2004, about four years, Okay, I think. Um, but I've known him since I was eight or nine. Oh, really? Yeah, we grew up in church together. Okay. Um, so, we were really good friends throughout our childhood into high school and sort of lost touch while he went to college. On our separate ways and reconnected a year or two. Okay. So, at 
one point did things change a bit? Um, was there a sign with us five years ago, two months ago? You know, it's easier to say now kind of looking back. Yeah. Um, there have been some small instances. Um, usually when he was very intoxicated, where he would sort of act in kind of a bizarre way. Sure. Of course, at the time, you know, I, it was, well, he's drunk or he's whatever. Um, thinking back, you know, obviously I kind of rehashed everything sure. and think, was this a science that I have known? Um, I work in, I'm very involved in the mental health field. I'm a teacher and I work with students who have a lot of mental health okay. or mental illnesses and all sorts of stuff. So I pride myself on being really aware, but obviously when you live with them, you're just not as much and I know that. Um, as far as real signs, honestly, I don't think that there was anything really major um, until he was in the hospital. He went into the hospital on February 9th, or January 19th. And what sparked that? Um, so, so that was a Friday, and it was the Thursday prior. Um, he was at work, and he was just kind of talking in front of an eye way. He wasn't really making a lot of sense. Um, he was very scatterbrained, is kind of how his coworkers described it. Okay. Um, and he worked um, for a water well company, servicing city wells. Okay. Um, and he worked. There was many people at the company, but he worked directly with one other person, and they would go out and do different jobs. And how long did he do that? Um, he started that like at the beginning of October. End of September, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and his the person, his partner, I guess you could say, the person who worked with him, they rode out to a location, and he was he just kind of had an uneasy feeling, something wasn't right, something was off, and um, so he was like, oh, let's go back to the shop, and he had either texted or called their supervisor and just said something's not right, we're coming back. Okay. Um, so they got back. The supervisor talked to David, um, a couple of other people had talked to him, and he, they all were in agreement that he was just sort of irrational, talking about things that didn't really make a lot of sense, um, very, making some, like, this, these religious statements, which is really out of the ordinary for him. Um, and so they had, they, they told him to go home, so they sent him home early that day. Um, and so I wasn't aware of this. So I was at work and I got a, a call, I believe, yeah, a call from his mom. Didn't see it. Um, kind of, I was get, talking with some coworkers, getting ready to leave, and I got a text from his brother. And I had seen at that point that I had the missed call, but was like, I'll just call her back okay. later. Saw the missed call, saw the text, and then I started thinking, okay, something's, something's wrong, what happened? Um, and his brother had just said, have you, are you on your way home? I said, yep. Um, he said, I think something's wrong with David or whatever. Um, he's talking to me. He's talking about North Dakota. He worked in North Dakota for three years. Um, and he's like, saying really weird things that don't make any sense and all this stuff. And so I had just texted his brother back. I said, please keep him on the phone. You know, it takes me 15 minutes to get home. Um, just keep talking to him. You know, so I know he's okay. Right. So I got home, and he was—he was kind of like elated, like he was just like, "Oh yeah, things are so great," and whatever. And I was like, "Okay, you know, like 
you know, I just put on, I'm a case manager, so I just kind of put those pants back on and was like, all right, you know, I was asking a lot of questions, um, and he was sort of irrational, um, wasn't making a ton of sense, like his thoughts were like, you're talking about one thing, and all of a sudden it was like way over here, and then it was back over here, and then they weren't making a ton of connections. And, but as we talked, I like to think I'm a pretty rational person, so as we talked, you know, he sort of started to come back down, I guess to earth, sort of, is how I described it, so he started to calm down, I think, he was just kind of really wrapped up in whatever, started to make more sense, he said a few things that I was like, that's, that's weird, you know, but I, but I called him out, and I was like, David, that doesn't make any sense, you know, mm-hmm. but he just said, and he, after thinking about it, was like, yeah, and all that, yeah, you're right, um, didn't, you know, after, like, went to bed fine, um, woke up the next day, and I knew something was made, like, I was just, I couldn't really figure it out. Mm-hmm. He woke up and he said something along the lines of, like, I need to drive you to work today. And I thought, well, he has a truck, maybe it snowed and the roads are bad or something. But, oh, is it snow and the roads bad? No, I just, I just have a feeling I need to drive you to work today. He said, well, no, that's fine. Like, I can drive myself. No, Emily, I need to drive you to work. The world is ending. He said, I said, why, you know, why, why are you thinking this? And he said some, I don't even know, some, I don't even remember what the reasons were. And he said, no, David, the world isn't ending, you know. I think he said something about, like, Trump, like, you know, the world's ending and Trump's president, blah, blah. I said, yeah, you know, and when Hitler rose to power, everyone probably thought the world was ending. And, you know, I listened up and he's like, yeah, no, it's fine. Okay, it's fine. So he called his boss and he's like, Yep, I'm just gonna be a little bit late. Goes to work. Fine. I go to work. I get to work. I have six missed calls from him. I mean it literally takes me we left at the same time, fifteen minutes to get to work. I'm like, then he's calling me again. You know, so I'm like, okay, answer it, say, What's up? You know, he called me six times, is everything okay? He said, Oh, I'm just worried about you. Are you at work? Did you make it? Yeah, I'm fine. I said, take a deep breath. You know, calm down. Everything's fine. I'll see you tonight. I said, okay. I te- you know, I made sure he might call on me. I texted him throughout the day just to check in, see how things were going. Um, I was able to get the number for his company that day and talk to his his boss before because I hadn't talked to them Thursday about like why they hadn't go home yet. And so Friday, before I left work, I called them and talked to them for maybe 30 minutes about kind of what they saw and what had happened. Um, Friday, I was, David and I were supposed to watch my best friend's son for the weekend. Um, And so I was meeting her out in Buffalo. And so I had called him on my way home just to check in again. You know, he was texting me norm, like it was normal. He wasn't. Irrational, it wasn't like anything out of the blue. So I called him on the way home, normal, nothing strange. Um, Called him a few separate times and he said something about how his dad wanted, oh, I should have mentioned on Thursday night, his dad came over. Okay. So I mean, sorry. Um, So rewind a little bit. His dad came over on Thursday night and talked to him for. Two hours, hour and a half, about, I'm not, I don't know, because I was asleep. Um, but his dad had came, 
he had a tennis match or something, and then he stopped by to talk to David. Okay. David had um, sort of been talking to them a little bit throughout the day was when he was sort of really irrational. So mm-hmm. that came over. Um, but I don't know what was said. Okay. So now I'm jumping ahead. Yep. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Um. So I'm riding a buffalo, and he called. And he said, "Oh, my parents wanted to come over." I said, "Okay. Well, can you just ask them to wait until I'm there?" Um. And I said, "I should be home six thirty-seven, somewhere around there." He said, "Okay." Then he calls me back. Well, why does why does matter? Because my parents didn't come over. I said, "Well, I think there's a lot going on with you, and I would like to be there so that I can." understand, you know, what they're seeing, mm-hmm. what they're hearing, what they're saying, and what I can help support you because you're my husband and that sort of thing. Um, he said, okay, 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 I'll tell him. So I went and picked up Owen, my friend's son, um, in Buffalo on my way home. I have no idea, like I hadn't talked to him since I left Buffalo. Okay. Um, so I get home, bring Owen upstairs, and as I get to the door, I can hear some voices. Open the door. Um, Scott and Nancy are sitting at our dining table. David is sitting there in, I believe, dress underwear, reading the book of Revelation. So at this moment, I'm thinking, shit. Many other things run through my head, but I'm thinking, okay, like, what's going on? Um, You know, I walk in, and I was like, oh, I didn't think you guys, you know, were getting here until later. Like, I was pretty upset. At this point, just because, like, uh, my French kid, that's just my priority right now to protect this baby. But it's my also my priority to support my husband. Um, and I was, yeah, I was, I was upset that they were already there because I had no idea what happened from the time I hung up the phone to the time I walked in. And so um, I... Called, I think I called, I, I called a lot of people. I called his mom, the baby's mom, to say, I don't know what's going on. She said, do you need me to come? I said, I don't know. Um, she was at a teaching conference up in St. Cloud. And so that's why I was watching yep. the baby. Um, and I had called, I think my dad, just to be like, I don't know what's happening. This is, this is literally, it's literally insane. It's insanity. Um, they had, Scott and Nancy had brought him some dinner. Um, he wasn't eating. Wasn't responding, responding to me whatsoever. Um, through, I, we were there for maybe two hours at our apartment, and I didn't put the baby down. You know, there, I was very nervous about him hurting the baby. Um, we have a, a golden retriever, and when I got home, the, he was very anxious. He was whining. He wouldn't leave my side. He was sort of just like jumpy about kind of everything. Um, so through this process, his parents had bought like an at-home drug test for him to take because they thought he had taken something to cause this. Um, And I mentioned previously that years ago, sometimes David would get very intoxicated and he would sort of act similar without the religious piece. He would be very like angry at me. Did you drink a lot prior to this? Um, I would love to say that I know how much he drank, but I realize now that I probably do not. Um, he moved home in July from North Dakota, and he hasn't drank a t- he hasn't drank a ton leading up to this. Um, but I believe out in North Dakota, he was drinking pretty heavily. Um, and I lived out there for a couple two different times. I lived out there once for three months, and then once for eight months um, with his sister. 
um, working out there. And this happened like the first time I, I lived out there, which was maybe the first year into our relationship, where he appeased me. And it wasn't every time he was super intoxicated. It was like randomly once every now and then. Very, very drunk. It was almost like he was like happy, go lucky dude, and then he's like, we'll take one more drink, and all of a sudden it would just be like, I'm angry with you, you're a terrible person, I can't believe you would lie to me, or never lie to him about anything. Um, but he would get this like sort of look in his eye where he like wasn't really there, and that's kind of how he was acting. And so at that point, I thought he had just gotten drunk from the time he got home until then. And when this happens in the past, I normally would try to get his attention. I'd smack him in the face, grab his face, look at me. What did you drink? What did you take? You know, what's going on? Um, his parents really didn't like that I did that. Um, but, you know, that's another story. Um, and he just, nothing. He just stared deadpan in my face, wouldn't respond. I checked um, the cabinet where we would keep our liquor. I had, we had just went to the liquor store like four days before or something, mm-hmm. even, and nothing was open, nothing was less than the levels where it had been. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking, okay, he either bought a bottle of something and drank it and dumped it somewhere, or he's not drunk and this is a super serious thing. Um, so it was at that point that I was sort of standing um, at our counter and I was trying to get the baby like some milk, something, mm-hmm. and he came and stood inches behind me and just was like breathing down my neck saying, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, and I know who you are. Um, and I'm a pretty like sarcastic person and so I just sort of let it go. I was terrified because the knives were right in front of me and so I just, I was like, Trying to play off, like, oh, can I get a little bit of room? Oh, excuse me, you know, whatever. Like, I wasn't trying to feed into it at all. Um, not long after that, he stood right in front of me and told me I was, um, that he forgave me for being a liar, that the Lord, our Savior, forgave me for this. Um, he did take the drug test, um, and it, I didn't actually see the results myself. I don't, if I did, I don't remember like what they said, but I know his dad said that they were positive for THC, um, which was expected. I knew that he was using marijuana. When did that come into play? The marijuana? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, he has used off and on since he was 18. Um, but out in North Dakota, he couldn't because they randomly drug tested frequently. Um, and he moved home in July, and from my understanding, from what he and I talked about, he started using pretty much right away. So I understand these recordings are pretty long. The first one was about 10, eight, eight minutes. The second one, you know, was a good like 17 minutes, but I just wanted you to get a basic idea of kind of what she, or the way she talked to the police. The first one was on the night of the incident. After the fire, she was taken into Molly Sutherland. She was an officer at the scene. She was taken into Molly Sutherland's car and kind of just questioned in, in her cruiser real quick. And then the second one was an interview with um, Officer Heath Bird, and that was on March 1st. And I just wanted you to kind of get an idea of just how she talked to them, like I said, um, because she kind of she was weird about some things like first she kept asking like when david's parents reached out like or did they reach out when did they reach out like you know she was very like 
dead set on getting that piece of information and I'm not I'm not sure why like she was afraid um, that they had reached out where she didn't want them to and then she was explaining kind of making herself seem like this weird victim or this helpless little victim like she made him seem scarier than he was in my opinion she's like oh the knives were there you know right in front of me whenever he was like standing over me which i understand when somebody is in an episode of psychosis and you've never been around them before when they were like that you know yeah it can be scary because you're not sure what they're gonna do but i she just kept making a note that like she was you know afraid like there was knives there and stuff i don't know but anyway so there's those recordings you can uh, finish them on gavin fish's website but i just wanted to put them on there just so you guys have a basic idea of what she is saying happened and everything and and what led up to his first episode of psychosis so i want to go over a couple things real quick so david's wife uh he was or she was visited by david's parents the day after the um fire the day after david passed and they just simply wanted to ask her what had happened they didn't come to harass her they didn't scream at her they said she sat in the corner of the room while her other family members walked to the home. Her mom was there and some other family members. They asked, um, I guess it was her mom, if they could, if there was a room they could maybe speak to her privately and about the case. They just wanted to know, you know, what exactly happened because they didn't have answers. All they heard was that he lit himself on fire and now he, he had passed. And that's literally all they knew. They don't know anything about what led up to the fire, what led up to him, you know, lighting himself or the way he was acting because the last time they had seen him, he was okay. Um, his wife's mom told them no and that they needed to leave because there was nowhere they could talk. And, of course, David's wife just kind of sat in the corner staring at them. She didn't seem interested. She didn't seem like she wanted to talk to them. So they proceeded to leave. David's wife then filed to have a restraining order placed against the Umquist, stating that they were harassing her that day and they had screamed at her, cussed her out when they visited, but they absolutely did not. They went there calmly just to seek information, just to ask what happened. I mean, that's their son. And I think, you know, they at least have a right to know what led their son up to doing this horrendous thing that he supposedly did to himself. Now, they they weren't accusing her of doing this to him. They have stated many times they're not accusing her of lighting him or anything, but they just think that there is something fishy about the investigation and they don't think it is, um, they just don't think it's the way that, that it's, you know, being claimed to have went down. So David's sister Amy was obviously still friends with Emily at this time, David's wife, and there are text messages back and forth between the two where Amy stated, are they there now? That's good. Mom cried for you when I last talked to her because Emily had stated that, or she had texted Amy and said that your parents are here. And she said, no, they left pretty quickly. They started to ask a lot of intense questions. She goes on to text that. And then she says, yeah, I'll talk later about it. I think it's just really exhausting all around. And it was really unexpected to have them come here. So you would think that if there was a cussing match going on or they treated her like total dog shit, like bad enough to get a restraining order, that she would have like told their daughter, Amy, about this, but she didn't. And also she said they were asking a bunch of intense questions, but they they said they never got to talk to her. So they, they didn't even get to ask questions. They wanted to, but they didn't get to. 
Um, she has also, David's wife has also accused him of stalking her on the restraining order, but this restraining order was dismissed because it had absolutely no merit whatsoever behind it at all. So here are a, a couple of things that are seen as being just really weird. Number one, on his autopsy photos, he was burned on over 90% of his body, as we know. But there are these two strips on his wrists that are perfectly fine, like clear, normal skin, and only on the underside of the wrist. So perfectly white skin, nothing burnt. And it almost looks like some, like he was resting against something. And if that's the case, then I don't know how he could have dumped the oil on himself if, you know, he was leaning with both wrists up against something and none of the oil got on it. And the oil was, you know, obviously attracted to, or the fire was obviously attracted to where the oil was on his body. Um, so it's kind of weird that, you know, he has no burning on his wrists. Now, um, I'm not sure about the tops of his wrists. I mean, he wasn't found to be tied up or anything, obviously, but they're just the weirdest spots on his wrist. So, you know, it kind of looks like he had been leaning against something or just something happened with those um, spots. And you can totally see those pictures on um, Scott Elmquist's website or um, Gavin Fish's website. Second, the first person to call 911 was not actually his wife. It was the neighbor who noted that his wife was running out of the apartment. So the neighbor noted that David's wife had been running out of the apartment and I guess there was a fire going on. Also, David's wife keeps telling people that her husband started a fire. She told dispatchers this as well, but she never told anyone that he was lighting himself on fire or had any oil on him. She made it seem like, okay, it's, it's, it's an emergency. He's, he's lighting a fire. But she never told anyone, hey, you need to come quick. Like, he's lighting himself on fire. When the maintenance man enters the apartment with the fire extinguisher, he only notices a small area of fire in the kitchen, just a very small area of fire, which he puts out. But then, this is a horrifying thing because the, the whole apartment was filled with smoke, but there was only a little amount of fire burning. But then he sees David, and David exits the bedroom completely, totally charred, he said, just walking down the hallway towards him. He said he couldn't see skin on the char like just black david was still on fire and the maintenance man just blasted him with the fire extinguisher and then he ran from the apartment because he has copd and the smoke was just too much for him it actually could have killed him so the maintenance man just made sure he was out um you know he extinguished him he put him out and he wasn't aware that david was you know blind that he was completely burnt and blind so the maintenance man didn't know he couldn't get out of the apartment on his own and also like I said, he could have died himself from being in that smoke. So he had to get out of there because he couldn't breathe. So then the police show up after the maintenance man did this and they talked to David's wife. She tells him that David's dangerous. He's suicidal. He has hands on knives. And so she basically lets on that he's totally crazy. And that's obviously not the case. He was blind and he was so injured beyond recognition. And he still made his own way out of the apartment and outside, as I mentioned before. But instead of the police helping him right away, they claim that he was refusing to leave the scene to get any help and they needed to check him for weapons. So, I mean, I understand they need to check for weapons, but he was so, I mean, just injured, like I said, beyond recognition. There's just no possible way he could have hurt the police, so. 
They claim he was refusing to leave the scene, like I said, to get help. This was only claimed by one or two of the officers on the scene, and I kind of find this hard to believe. I just don't think he was refusing. I mean, you are completely burnt in so much pain, probably, and scared, and I, I just don't know that you would be refusing to get help. Next, the lighter that he supposedly lit himself with was never found. The fire marshal says he may have threw it out the window. David may have threw it out the window and lit a towel that was near the stove on fire because there was a towel that was smoldering. However, his wife claims that her mom did locate the lighter eventually when they were looking through her belongings in the apartment, but it was never turned in. And supposedly she just located the lighter, you know, laid it down on a counter, and that was that. It never got turned in. Very weird. Lastly, this is a big one. There were knives at the scene and they looked completely staged. There was literally oil all over the entire apartment. There was oil, there was burnt stuff, you know, like black stuff. There was soot, there was um, fire extinguisher, like the, the foam, the fluid that comes out of the fire extinguisher kind of turns into a powdery substance. It was all over the apartment, everywhere, on literally everything. There was just debris everywhere. There was blood um, in David's footprints, places he sat. But somehow these knives were laying on the carpet were completely clean, completely clean. And they said David's hands were almost degloved. So he had literally like no skin on his hands. And somehow these knives were completely 100% clean. So if he ever would have touched them or was waving them around when he was burning, they would have been bloody. They would have had, you know, they would have been burnt. They would have had stuff on them and they were completely clean. They are our pictures of these and they just, I mean, there would have been something. I think so on those knives. Um, this case will definitely take you down a rabbit hole. You'll be listening to all of the interrogations, be looking into it forever. I spent forever, like the past few months, just looking into it. I have signed the petition for um, David's father. And Scott has been attempting, as I've mentioned, to get this case reinvestigated for, um, I mean, ever since it happened. And it's just, he's, I mean, he's essentially getting turned down repeatedly. So I would encourage you to visit truthfordavid.com. It's justice for David Scott Elmquist. And Scott kind of posts all of his updates on, you know, where he's getting with the case. And there you'll find the petition that you can sign, um, the photos, and also... Like I said, you can go to gavinfish.com, look up his cases or click on his cases, and then you'll be able to find David Elmquist's case there. But the Minnesota Attorney General had said when Scott inquired about getting this case, you know, looked into, the Attorney General said that they have no authority over local police departments and fire departments. So they basically couldn't do anything. It was, it was basically kind of like, yeah, we can help you. He's still currently fighting this and he definitely needs all the help he can get from everyone. Like I said, he has that petition that can be signed and he's currently, or he has recently held a rally in Minnesota to get some attention for this case that was so wrongfully dismissed, in my opinion, as well as, you know, tens of thousands of other people that have signed the petition. It was just so wrongfully dismissed. You know, even if they don't figure figure out much further, I, I do believe it really still needs to be looked into. There's just something so fishy about it. There's a lot of things fishy about it, but 
I hope you enjoyed this episode. And like I said, please just give this case a look. Do your own research as well. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and leaving me a rating and review on whatever platform you get your podcast. Thanks for listening and until next time.